Here's a few words with Adam McFadden of Firehouse Training. Hey, Adam. Hi, Scott. How's it going tonight? It's going well. Good, brother. Why don't we do a recap of March? Yeah, March was fantastic for Firehouse Training. We had the opportunity to run our CBRNE Hazmat Fundamentals with Ground Robots and Drone Systems Virtual Course. So we had a handful of participants out for that, where we had the opportunity to discuss procedures and different response protocols that occur for law enforcement, fire, and also paramedics on a hazmat or CBRNE scene. We also had the opportunity to see how technologies are used. So drones, ground robots, and other types of technical devices that are primarily used by law enforcement. But we're seeing more and more fire departments here, not only in Ontario, but across North America starting to utilize. So that was a pretty exciting course, and we had some good feedback from that. Again, our Firefighter 5 AM Club continues to sell out, not only firefighters, but even others in the community that are looking to discuss motivational nuggets, so to speak, when it comes to how they can kickstart their day, focus not only on goal accomplishment, but also mental health, especially in this trying time. The 5 AM Club was, uh, was great in March. Fantastic. And what's coming up? This month's actually going to be huge for us. We have our high-rise fire safety tactics course that we're running again on Saturday, April 10th from 9 until 1, again in a virtual format. So some of the topics that we're going to be covering in our high-rise firefighting course include advanced fire suppression and firefighting tactics, fire alarm systems, and also some high-rise residential and commercial fire safety procedures, and also coordinating that with on-site security, utilizing building functions, fire alarm panels, and other smoke ventilation equipment. We are going to have a couple of guest instructors from across North America joining us, even some on-duty crews for some various fire departments here in Ontario that are currently registered and planning to attend Saturday, April 10th from 9 until 1, and the cost for that is $150 plus HST. Another program that we're excited to run this month, back to some in-class training with our friends at Elements Robotics, we're going to be running a two-day training program at the Grimsby Fire Regional Training Center on drone fundamentals for the emergency services. Now, the nice thing about this course is it runs in accordance with NFPA 2400 and this two-day practical drone training course specific to the emergency services will help some of the students understand drone regulations and operating requirements, as well as learning a little bit more about legislation and maintenance and how to do various flight logs. We're also going to have the students have the opportunity to play with different drone systems and understand the capabilities through a drone obstacle course. The cost for that two-day program is $695 plus HST. And that runs on April 24th and 25th. If anybody's looking for information on that, feel free to reach out to Firehouse Training for those details. I know that you've also been working on a really special project in the book you have coming out. Why don't you tell me about that? Absolutely, Scott. It's certainly been a long time coming. Uh, over the last few years, I've been working pretty hard at putting together a lot of the different items that I've used to help our candidates in our career coaching sessions, from resume and cover letter and interview prep, as well as the different avenues that we offer here at Firehouse Training. So we are proud to announce that we are officially coming out with a recruitment guidebook. It's called So You Want to Be a Firefighter A, and it's coming out at the end of April 2021. And the nice thing about this book is it will definitely be Canada's most comprehensive literature on how to become a firefighter in uh, the Canadian Fire Service. For any um, veteran firefighters out there, there's about eight to 10 chapters as well. Different aspects of this book includes firefighter roles and responsibility, understanding the different job opportunities throughout the fire service in Canada, tips and strategies and how to land your dream job from the initial application stage to the final interview. There's also hundreds and hundreds of fire service aptitude test questions, sample interview questions, as well as different chapters on managing your fire service career, mental health, health and fitness, promotional opportunities, and also becoming a leader in the fire service. 
you've helped us out as well uh, by writing the forward in the book. So we couldn't be more thrilled to have you on board. And those copies will be available on the Firehouse Training website and uh, Amazon.ca and Amazon.com. A portion of all proceeds for the sales of that book will help out local first responder charities, another endeavor that we're looking forward to here at Firehouse Training. Just like to thank you, Scott, and all the Multiple Cause listeners out there for everything over the last year and the work that we've been able to accomplish together. And we definitely look forward to working with yourself and, and seeing and hearing from everybody again. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, too. It's been great. Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl wrote in Man's Search for Meaning, The one thing you can't take away from me is the way I choose to respond to what you do to me. The last of one's freedoms is to choose one's attitude in any given circumstance. My guest this episode has faced barriers, challenges, doubts, and judgments throughout her life. She has proven to others, and most importantly to herself, that holding to a personal ethos and persevering in spite of it all is the most honest and worthy path to choose. It's a privilege to introduce you to Jess Claremont. Hey, Jess. Hey, Scott. How are you? Good, you? Good. So why don't you start by telling me where you're from originally and about your family and your upbringing? Sure. I was born in Owen Sound, Ontario. About grade six, I moved to Port Elgin. My parents actually ended up uh, separating and getting divorced. So I moved with my mom. Port Elgin is a small town in, in cottage country up on Lake Huron. If you've ever seen the Canadian show Letterkenny, I joke that's where I grew up. <laughs> Perfect. Letterkenny is actually based on Listable, Ontario, but that's pretty close to Port Elgin there and Owen Sound. So, oh, my parents have lived in Palmerston for years now. Yeah, so same idea, you know, just a small town kind of vibe. When I think of my childhood, my time in Port Elgin, that's what I remember the most because I would have been there from grade six till grade 12. Did you move again? One of my backgrounds is a competitive hockey player. And uh, I was always kind of told at a young age that if I wanted to go somewhere in women's hockey, if I wanted scouts to see me, I had to play in the city. It worked out well. My stepdad at the time, he was a hydro guy working up at the Bruce power plant up in King Carden. He just took a transfer to the Pickering power plant. And uh, my mom, she always loved the city. So she was game for moving. So we uprooted and we moved down to the city after I made one of the teams here in Toronto. That would have been in my OAC year. So grade 13 of high school was when I moved. Was it a bit of a culture shock for you? For sure. Like I said, I had a bit of that Letterkenny background, small town feel. At the time, I wasn't even in Toronto. I was living in Pickering. But uh, definitely much more uh, culturally diverse compared to where I grew up. I remember I overheard my parents talking one night. It was my stepdad who said to my mom, how would you feel if Jesse came home with a brown boy? And in my head, I was laughing. I wasn't out to my parents yet at the time, but I remember in my head thinking, oh, what about a brown girl? (laughs) (laughs) Just to paint a little bit of a picture of the different diversity that we saw when we moved here to Pickering. So you were obviously athletic at a young age. You played hockey. Any other sports? Yeah, I always think of myself as a seasonal athlete. So I had a sport for every season. I played hockey in the winter. Um, I also played basketball. I played soccer in the summer. I played lacrosse a bit. And uh, dabbled in martial arts here and there as well. 
I'm sure a lot of athletes know, and I came across this when I was in high school, my coaches were like, you have to pick a sport that you want to focus on. My basketball coach is bugging me to pick basketball and my soccer coach is bugging me to pick soccer, but hockey was the sport that I was truly in love with. So what's well, nice to be wanted. <laughs> yeah. I still laugh about my basketball coach thinking I had a good future. Like I'm only five foot four. So that's <laughs> kind of funny, right? Uh, there's a few NBA stars that are shorter in stature. Yeah. Smaller point guard. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so how did your fitness and approach to fitness change over the years? Early in my life, it was as simple as just playing sports. Kept me pretty active. It was later when I was focusing on my hockey career. I was trying out for Team Ontario and I got cut. And some of the feedback they gave me was, you need to work on your upper body strength. And it was like literally the next week, my mom took me and signed me up at the local gym in Port Elgin to start working. So the next year I wouldn't get cut from Team Ontario. And I'm pretty thankful for that. The guy who owned the gym at the time, to me, he's still one of my best friends today. That was when I was 14 years old. So he's known me since I was that young. And still to this day, if I got a question about fitness programming, I can call him up and he'll help me out. Amazing. But I invited this guy to my wedding. That's how important this guy is to me. And I even said during my wedding speech, he made me not only a better athlete as a hockey player, but to this day, he's made me a better firefighter. So fantastic. Have you always been really good with constructive criticism and taking it in a healthy way and sort of tackling that challenge? Or have you ever struggled with like negative self-talk and letting it beat you down? You know what? I don't ever want this to come across as cocky or something, but no, I don't think I really have struggled with too much negative self-talk. I'll still say this. This is something I learned when I was young. People told me, they're like, if your coach is yelling at you, it's because they believe in you. They think you can be better. If they're not yelling at you, that's when you should be worried. Uh, what great advice. Yeah. So I still kind of carry that with me today. And you're going to see, I relate tons of stuff back to hockey because that's what I knew growing up. To me, even in firefighting, if it's my captain and she's mad at me for something, it's because she knows I can be better. And that's why she's giving me shit for it. So you competed in FireFit for six years as well. Yes. So even before I was hired as a firefighter, I watched the FireFit events. And, you know, when I had dreams of being a firefighter, I thought, I want to try that. So then when I did get hired, one of the females that represented Toronto FireFit team, she was the best in Canada. And I remember meeting her for the first time. I was at the academy just learning. And I met her because she was down there training for her competitions. And she was huge. Like She's way bigger than me. And I think I literally said to her, I was like, wow, you're huge. Because I was thinking, <laughs> I want to compete in this sport, but I'm not as strong as this girl. Like, there's no way. That's what I thought. But anyways, I got into the sport. She helped me, mentored me. Same thing. I went back to my original trainer from my hockey days and he helped program stuff for me to help me get better at the course. And like, I'll be honest, when I first started, because it was this one other girl who's the Canadian champion. And then we were training with the guys of the FireFit team. Like they're just way better than me. <laughs> and I was, you know, feeling kind of crappy about myself. So I remember there'd be one day a week where I'd go down to the academy and just train by myself. And literally my trainer set it up. So like, if you think about, you know, doing a typical workout routine where you do three sets of five squats, for instance, that's how my trainer would set up. He's like, okay, you're going to run the seven flights of stairs with 45 pounds on your back. You're going to run that three times. So you do it once, take a break, let the lactic acid leave your body, do it again, and then do it a third time, just like I would with squats. And he broke down every exercise like that, whether it was the dummy drag, the Kaiser, the rope pull, the hose advance, everything. So I remembered I'd go practice by myself. So I didn't feel 
you talked about having negative talk, but when I was training with the athletes that have been doing this longer than me and they were all better than me, I didn't feel as shitty about myself because I'd gone and practiced on my own to get better at the skills. So Awesome. It just shows that you can adapt and overcome if you really want to. Yeah, huh. I try. <laughs> <laughs> what years did you compete? It was right in my probie year. I got hired in 2008. So 2009 would have been my first summer competing in FireFit. I spent three years running individual plus team stuff. And then my last three years, I only did teams. I'm sure you're somewhat familiar. I know you've had other FireFit athletes on your podcast. And FireFit's one of those sports. It's like a love-hate relationship. Right before the race, you're thinking to yourself, you're like, why do I do this to myself? Like, What am I thinking? And then after the race, you're like, oh man, I can't wait to do that again. I know you've had Mandy Gould on your show. Yeah, She was far better than I was as a competitor. So I never raced against her individually. But in the team side of it, Toronto and Brampton were definitely two of the teams that were normally competing against each other on the women's side. It was always exciting to watch. Yeah, definitely. That was one of the best things about FireFit. It's great. Yes, you get in good shape for your job, but definitely the friends you meet. I met other females through Toronto Fire, but here I, I had a whole group of friends with Brampton Fire just from that sport. You have the greater fire service, and then you have your own department, and then you've got your platoon, and then you've got your crew. And then the very, very microcosm is something like FireFit, right? It's just a very unique thing. Totally. So what are your workouts like now? What do you currently follow? When I was younger, and again, this is more hockey related, I, I normally followed a periodized program. If some people don't know what that means, it's just my trainer kind of had my whole year planned out for me. And at different times of year, I was training different stuff. For example, during hockey off season, which is the summertime, I'd be working on my strength, maybe a bit of hypertrophy. So actually making your muscles grow. When I was getting closer to season, maybe I'd be working on explosiveness and speed training. During season, maybe I'd be tapering off a bit and just maintaining my strength. Recently, I've switched to more of a CrossFit style workout. Now, with that being said, like I'm by no means a CrossFit athlete. I call what I do scale fit because <laughs> I can't do half the stuff that those athletes do. I'll start with a strength component. I always keep the four big lifts, whether it's squats, deads, bench, or overhead press. And then I'll do more of a circuit, which would be kind of the way I see CrossFit. I leave all the technical aspects out. <laughs> I can't do muscle ups or I can't do handstand walks and stuff like that. When I watch the ones that they call the fittest on earth, those athletes are truly amazing. Like any other high-end professionals in sports, they are maybe built for it. That's why Michael Phelps swims. Yeah. I hope that's an excuse I can use is why I'm not that good. <laughs> <laughs> Same. <laughs> <laughs> They're built for it. <laughs> yeah. So what was your school and academic career path like? I can be honest. I never really cared about school. I just focused on sports. That's all I really cared about. Maybe my grades were in like the 70s. It was in my uh, OAC year. I actually had a teacher kind of put a challenge to me. And it wasn't just to me. Like he was saying this to the whole class, but it really spoke to me. He kind of made a comment and it was simple as, if you hand me in a C plus paper, you're a C plus person. And I thought, no, I'm not. I'm an A plus person. But I always handed in C plus papers. So <laughs> I, I kind of thought, well, I don't want anyone to think of me like that. That was my OAC year of high school, where he said that one sentence to the class. I took a year off school. I just worked. The next year, I ended up taking a full ride scholarship for hockey down to the States. My four years in university, I was on the dean's list. I got a 4.0. 
So even in high school, when I got 70s, it wasn't because I was dumb or didn't understand. It was because I didn't apply myself. And like I said, that teacher basically said one sentence and it kind of changed the way I thought. And all of a sudden, here I was, that A-plus student that he kind of challenged me to be. So you mentioned to me that your high school guidance counselor talked to you about being a firefighter. You know, it was that time in high school where our guidance counselors wanted to know, what did we want to be when we grow up? And I don't even remember how I came to this conclusion, but I'm sure it was because it was the physical side of it and something as simple as having to wear a uniform every day. So I didn't have to pick out what outfit I was wearing to work. I liked the simplicity of it. But anyways, I went to him and I told him I wanted to be a firefighter. And he said, you can't be a firefighter. You're too small. And I'll give him some credit at certain times that might have been true. Like maybe they only took people of certain stature that might have been true. I don't really know. But I remember going home and telling my mom what he said. And my mom was pissed. Like she was furious. And to be honest, I just kind of forgot about firefighting. I just moved on. I was like, well, I guess I can't do it. And then I can fast forward to uh, university. I was undeclared. I didn't know what I was going to study. Again, I was just thinking about hockey. That's all I cared about. Um, So eventually I had to pick a major and I picked criminal justice because that was what interested me the most. And I can even remember my best friend and I at the time, we had plans. I don't remember which one of us was going to drive the cop car and which one of us was going to hang out the window shooting people. But <laughs> like that, that was our plan. We were going to be cops. <laughs> and I remember it was my law enforcement class. And this is in my senior year. So my fourth year at university and my law enforcement teacher makes the comment, when you're a police officer, you're trying to do something good for your community, but everyone hates you. And I thought, well, I can't do a job where everyone hates me. I can't do that. There it was again, one sentence kind of changed everything for me. And I don't remember what it was. I was probably watching TV or something and a firefighter came on the screen and that's when it all came back to me again. I can be a firefighter. So I started doing research and there it was. I hadn't even graduated university yet and I was already enrolled for college the next year back in Canada in the pre-service fire program. When did you first start working? Like what jobs did you have before the fire service? A whole mix. I feel like I started working pretty young. Oh, I would have still been in elementary school if it was simple stuff like just cutting grass around the neighborhood. I worked for a local farmer picking fruits and vegetables. I worked at the local gym. Eventually, I went and got my personal trainer certificate. A bit later in life, even at university, I ended up being a resident assistant. One thing I will say, some people probably don't know this about my background. One of the things I did right before I got hired as a firefighter was I I worked at a swingers club. I was dying to ask you about this. (laughs) (laughs) This one has the best stories with it. The reason that came about, I was playing semi-pro hockey at the time here in Canada. And the people who owned my hockey team, they also owned a swingers club. And I remember the one night, my teammates were like, Jess, come on, we're going to go to the swingers club. And I was thinking, what? We're going to go swing dancing? (laughs) And my teammates are like, no, you idiot. And then, you know, they educate me on what a swingers club is. I was like, oh. Okay. So it starts off like that. We go and we laugh. And then eventually the hockey team owners who own the club, they would have big events and they needed help at the club. So they'd ask us. So we'd go and help. And eventually the two jobs I mostly remember there is I would work the front door. So I would take people's money when they came to pay their cover charge, or I would work the coat check. And normally when you're working the door or working the coat check, you're normally only busy at the beginning of the night and at the end of the night. So in that mid portion, I was actually pretty bored. So I'd bring, whether it was my IFSTA textbook or maybe it was my study questions to help me study for interviews. I was never good at the aptitude tests. I had to go reteach myself grade five, six math to get better at them. So maybe I had my grade five, six math books there with me. But anyways, I used that time. I truly think that study time that I had at that swingers club 
that really helped me get hired. So. Amazing. What was your parents' take on that job? You know what? They were okay with it. My parents have always been pretty supportive of most things I've done. Well, I mean, with that being said, I've always been, I don't want to say a good kid, but you know, I was a pretty good kid. I have an older sister. She normally did maybe like the backwards way to do stuff. So I, I learned a lot from her of how not to do things. <laughs> she set a good example for me that way. She showed me what not to do kind of thing. So yeah, I think that's been the way with me and my younger sister too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, good role models, even though it might be backwards. But, exactly. <laughs> yeah. What was your first exposure to the fire service? You know, I can remember early and again, this would have been when I was in elementary school. I was walking home one day from school and there's a fire truck parked outside of my house. And I thought, this is weird. Well, I go inside and my mom's giggling away to the firefighters. She burned some cookies or something she was making. Still laugh about that. And then otherwise, you know, it was probably mostly TV shows. I can remember the movie Backdraft. It was probably my favorite movie when I was in high school. There was also a show on TV called Third Watch. Yeah. Yeah, you've seen that show. That was kind of based on New York City. So it not only featured the fire department, but it also featured police officers and paramedics. So I'd say when I think of a TV show that really turned me on to firefighting, that was probably it. Have you watched the Backdraft sequel? I have. (laughs) (laughs) And? I liked it, but I'm one of those nerds, like I'll watch anything firefighter. So even you think about like the shows like Chicago Fire, 911, Lone Star, like they're cheesy, but I still watch them because it's firefighting. I'm a terrible heckler with stuff like that. So you and I couldn't watch those shows together. Well, that's okay. I'm open to heckling. Okay, wicked. (laughs) Um, There's a, I'm sure you've seen it on social media. I think it's called Fire Department Chronicles. Yeah, it's amazing. And yeah, and he green screens himself into the shows. Yes. So yeah, that's, that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> so what was your journey to getting hired like? I guess I feel pretty lucky compared to some people. I mean, even in my recruit class, there were some guys who were like, I've been trying to get hired for five years. And I think after I graduated from college, it was probably about eight months. So I felt pretty lucky. Even some background with that. I can remember in college they give us the speech, only 10% of you are going to get hired. I distinctly remember them mentioning how white males will have a harder time getting hired. They are looking for visible minorities. I remember them saying that, which kind of, now that I think about it, I don't want to say it bothers me, but I think they presented that wrong. I'm an instructor now within pre-service college programs. So this is something even I tell my current students. But the first guy to get hired out of my college class, he was a white male. And to me, the reason he got hired is because he worked his ass off. It had nothing to do with anything else other than he worked his ass off. That's why he got hired first out of our class. And I'll even say about him, when I finally got an interview with Toronto Fire, he offered, he's like, Jess, come on, let's meet up. I'll help you with your interview questions. And I can even remember this guy in college, like we had a ladder quiz that day or something. And I was studying for my ladder test and he was going over interview questions. And I'm like, don't you want to study for this ladder test? And he's like, I got it. I got to focus on these interview questions. And I was like, holy smokes, this guy's way ahead of me. But to me, that was just hard work. And then on the other side of things, so here, here I am a female, I'm a visible minority. And I remember the instructor saying something along the lines of, you'll get hired no problem because you're a girl. To me, that's not a good message to send either because I've already mentioned, I struggled with the aptitude test. I might've been getting seventies on it, Like I said, I retaught myself grade five, six math. And then I was finally getting into the high 80s for a teacher to tell me you're going to get hired. No problem because you're a female. Well, that's not true. I still have to work hard. I still I still have to get good scores on the aptitude tests. 
they shouldn't have presented it that way. I've had a student, I think it was last year, and he was a white male talking about how stressed he was about getting hired. And I wasn't sure if he had heard from other instructors that, well, you're a white male, you're probably going to struggle getting hired because they're not looking for white males right now. They're looking for minorities. I told him the story from my college course. That guy got hired because he worked his ass off and that was it. That's why he got hired first. Nobody else in our class worked as hard as that guy did. So I felt pretty lucky. Toronto Fire, at the time, they had made a huge list five years prior. They had a five-year hiring freeze on where they hadn't hired anyone because they were just working off of this massive list. And like I said, I wasn't really great at the aptitude test. I was still getting used to interview questions and whatnot. But I'd been applying to lots of different places. Just to name a few, like Pickering, Sarnia. I know I was in the Ottawa process. Other places in the GTA. Every aptitude test I was writing, I was getting better and better at it. I remember them teaching us that in college. Like after you finish an aptitude test, come outside and write down everything that you can remember. Because a lot of times they use the same tests. So anyways, by the time I got all my ducks in a row, I had my DZ license. I was getting good at the aptitude tests, done my CPR, first aid certificates, all that stuff. All of a sudden, Toronto Fire opens. So to me, it was just perfect timing. I remember writing their aptitude tests, and I'd already written that same test two other times. So it was pretty fresh in my head. And I'd taken the advice that people had given me, and I got hired. You were ready for the opportunity when it knocked. Yeah. Even with Toronto. You pass their physical test, their aptitude test, their common knowledge test. You have to go through medical exams. You wait for the letter saying, we'd like to offer you this position with the city of Toronto. And I remember I'd come home from work every night and check my email. I'm sure you've heard of it. There used to be this, what'd you call that? I don't know if it's like a blog. A forum? Yeah. I think it was called firehall.com or something. And people would post, this department's hiring or this department's hiring. And then they'd post, oh, I got a job offer from this department. So that was my routine when I'd come home from work every day. I'd check my email and then I'd go on firehall.com to see if anyone else got job offers from Toronto yet. I remember thinking, man, this is torture. Yeah, that's still going on. (laughs) Oh, yeah. But then that day when I finally did get the email, what a relief. (laughs) What a great feeling to get that job offer. What was your recruit class experience like? You know what? I found my recruit class was almost identical to my college experience. Even as far as we had some of the same instructors. I don't want to say I thought it was easy, but it was almost like I just repeated college again. So good refresher on all the basics that we needed to know. And good friendships that came out of that? Unsuspecting friendships, if that makes any sense. There's one guy from my recruit class, and I always make this joke to him. He was the youngest guy, so he was 19 years old. Our class average was 27. So this kid was 19, and I thought, 19-year-old, I'm like, he's going to be a (laughs) douchebag. I tell him this story even today that I thought he was going to be a douchebag. He actually has a father on the job. So I think his father did a good job raising him because he wasn't a douchebag. He's actually a very respectful kid. But anyways, the amount of times that our paths have crossed in this career. And so even to this day, he'll say that he considers himself a pump guy at heart. So if I ever have questions about pump operations, that's the guy I go to. It was somebody from my class. I never expected to be that good of friends with that 19-year-old douchebag from my recruit class. (laughs) Just kidding. He's not a douchebag. (laughs) What were your rookie years like? The first hall I was assigned to, slow hall. Known as like a retirement hall. The good news was it was a single rescue truck hall. So I was going to learn some good skills because they did auto acts. They were also a rapid intervention team. So some specialized skills. My very first day on the job, I walk into the hall and I'm pumped, if you can imagine. I have the muffins or the donuts or whatever people advise me that I should bring on my first day for the guys. 
And I'm pretty excited. I go in there and I remember my captain gets me alone and he says, Jess, I've had really bad experiences with female firefighters, but I don't expect anything different from you. Wow. You get kind of crushed. And I'm like, all right, well, it is what it is. (laughs) So (laughs) that kind of sucks for my first day on the job. But the good news about that captain is I never had to wonder what he was thinking. So I did my probie year there. And then I was lucky. I put a transfer sheet in for what I call my dream hall. And when I say my dream hall, it's because at the time in college, they were still doing rideouts. So I got assigned to that hall as a student. So that's why I was in love with the hall. So anyways, after my probie year, I put my sheet in and I got the spot at my dream hall. And that same captain came up to me. He said something along the lines of, you know what, Jess, you are a hard worker. I really did enjoy working with you. He's like, I'm going to call that hall and tell them that they're getting a good firefighter. So even for him to say that compared to my first day, I'm just trying to say like, it's not all bad. A lot of that has to do with you and how you approach people and how you approach challenges. Possibly, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the way I see it. I'll accept that. (laughs) Good. That's good. (laughs) So speaking of constructive criticism, who have been your mentors and guides? It's kind of funny. When I think about mentors, this might be horrible to say, but sometimes I feel like a lot of mine maybe didn't come from Toronto Fire Services, but it came from firefighters outside. My second captain, he probably taught me the most about firefighting tactics, tips and tricks I can use at different calls. That first probie hall I was at, a traveler that came in who was a younger firefighter, he really took the time and he went through the whole truck with me. 12 years later now, I still remember that. So I'm grateful for people like that that I've met throughout my career. Even now, if I'm considered a senior firefighter at my hall, I try to emulate that stuff. So if we get a new firefighter, I take them through every single aspect of our truck. And don't get me wrong, I had senior firefighters, kind of like my older sister. Sometimes they showed me what not to do. (laughs) Right. That makes sense. Yeah. They're teachers too. Yeah. What about the impact of social media for you and seeing people outside your department? I would say it's pretty huge. I'm a forcible entry instructor now. It's something I'm pretty passionate about. But the reason I became so passionate about it is because I realized how much I sucked at it. And the call, and I've told this story before, we respond to a high-rise fire. We know what unit's on fire because we can see a little bit of smoke and flame around the door frame. What I actually think happened is I think somebody had put some accelerant around the door frame. That's why it was on fire. It's not because the fire inside the unit was huge or anything. But anyways, we know the units, we stretch our hose line, we're ready. At the time, Toronto Fire didn't really have great forcible entry training. When I got to the trucks, it was kind of like, here's a sledgehammer, just swing away. That was our forcible entry training. So my junior guy, he picked up the sledgehammer and he started swinging away at this door. And it felt like it took him 60 swings with the sledgehammer. Now, it wasn't 60. It was probably only 30, but that's how long it felt. So anyways, I'm on the nozzle waiting for the door to open so I can put the fire out. And as I'm sitting there, I can see my captain holding a Halligan bar. And I think I should grab the Halligan bar and help my buddy here. But I resorted back to my college training, which unfortunately my force of entry training in college also wasn't very good. So I thought, I don't even remember how to use that bar. (laughs) And then, so again, I have a lot of time to think here. I'm thinking my junior guy who's swinging that sledgehammer right now, he's probably 50 pounds heavier than me. So every swing he takes, he's generating more force than I am because I'm smaller. And I'm not trying to say I can't break a door down. I'm just saying it's going to take me more hits because I'm smaller. Like that's physics. That's how long I had to think about this. That's how long it took to open the door. 
Long story short, my junior guy finally breaks the door down. We put the fire out. But when I went back to the hall that night, that was when I started researching for subentry techniques. And I went to the internet. And on YouTube, some of the first videos I saw was Mike Perone from the FDNY. Oh, he's awesome. Totally awesome. To me, Mike Perone truly is my first forcible entry instructor that I've ever had. And I've never met him. All I've done is watch his videos. So after that call and after I started doing my research, we would go to other calls and my captain would say, okay, we need this door open. And I would say, hey, do you mind if I try something? And now I'm picking up the Halligan bar because now I know how to use it. I'm just trying stuff that I saw Mike Perone do in his videos. It starts as simple as that. And to have a mentor, I haven't even met the guy. But yeah, he's my mentor. Awesome. How are people receptive to you being an instructor and passing on this information? How has that gone for you? I'd have to say, well, I feel pretty lucky. And I don't know if it's being in the right place or the right time, but I've had a few opportunities presented to me where people just knew. They're like, hey, Jess is a good instructor. Let's ask her if she wants to be part of our cadre. I feel lucky in that way. That's even with the colleges. I had a friend who knew me. They might have seen me teach something, whether it was firefit stuff or do some forcible entry stuff with them. And they pass it on to their bosses and like, hey, you should look at this girl. So I feel kind of lucky that way. Kind of knew the right people at the right time. And been the right person. Yeah, well, I guess that <laughs> that must play a part of it too. Yeah, yeah 100%. <laughs> Tell me about some calls that maybe were teachable moments. The first one that comes to my mind is, again, it was at a high-rise fire and it happened to be a hoarder residence. I'll try to paint the whole picture. Our truck was first on scene. We had elevator control, so my senior guy stayed in the elevator, and it was my captain and I that went up. We walk up, we open that stairwell door to the hallway, and sure enough, it's zero viz. So we start masking up. And I remember my captain saying, the door must be open. That's why it's zero viz in the hallway, which, simple concept, but sometimes you forget. The occupant left their door open. (laughs) So anyways, he's doing a right-hand search, and I'm doing a left-hand search. So he's looking for an open door on the right-hand side. I'm on the left-hand side of the hallway doing the same thing. And I think at the time... I just hit the very first standpipe I came across. You know, my captain's doing radio stuff. So I just hit the first standpipe. We didn't locate the fire first. I just, I hit the first one. We keep going down with our search. I got the charge line with me. I come across a door that's open on the left-hand side. So I push it open a bit. I search the left-hand wall. I search in front of the door that's open and it feels like a wall. And then I search behind the door and it also feels like a wall. So I'm thinking, am I in like a garbage chute room? This doesn't make sense. So I put my hand right across the wall. And I find an opening and it might be six inches. What had happened is the occupant had put their fridge blocking the hallway. And all they left was about six inches that this old lady could squeeze through. Wow. So anyways, I felt lucky that I even found that opening because I could have just been like, nope, this is a garbage chute room. Going to keep going. So anyways, I tell my captain, I found an open door. I think this is it. And then I tell them the hallway's blocked with something. I'm lucky I'm small, so I can squeeze through. And my captain, he's on the other side. He's trying to figure out what the hell this object is blocking the hallway. I'm still going into the room. Now I'm tripping over stuff because there's clutter all over the floor. Again, I let my captain know, I think it's a hoarder. There's shit everywhere in here. I turn a corner because I'm still doing a left-hand search. So I turn a corner and I can see fire blowing out of one of the rooms down the hall. I can see it through the smoke up near the ceiling level. So I say to my captain, I'm like, this is it. This is the fire unit. And I said, I need more hose because I was caught. And he's like, that's it. That's all the hose we got. Oh. <laughs> Remember I told you I hit the very first standpipe? Right. We didn't know where the fire location was. I just hit the first standpipe. So anyways, the next in crew, my captain, he just tells them to hit the next closest standpipe. 
And eventually they get me the hose line because they still can't get in this room because this fridge is blocking it. I think they ended up laying the fridge down flat and crawling over it. That's how they ended up getting in. But anyways, back to what I was doing. I get more hose line. I can make the push down the hallway. I put the fire room out because I know which room was on fire. And then I start a primary search of that room because that's what we're taught. Again, this was a hoarder fire. So in this room, I can tell you the pile of stuff was probably piled up to my chest level. (laughs) So I jump up on the pile of crap and I start trying to search it. And like, I'm falling in holes. Like I remember my legs were getting caught in holes and I have to pull my leg out of the hole and keep crawling. And at this point now I'm doing a right-hand search and I run into the far wall. So I'm going to make a left-hand turn from my right-hand wall search. (laughs) And I see what I think is white Christmas lights in the apartment. And I thought, oh, I can see over there. I'm going to crawl really fast to where I can see. So I crawl really fast. I'm going towards these, what I think are white Christmas lights. It's the summertime. So that's why it doesn't make sense. There's Christmas lights up. Anyways, as I get closer, I realize those are not white Christmas lights. Those are city of Toronto lights. So now I'm starting to realize, okay, I'm sitting right in front of a window and I reach my hand out to touch the window, but it's blown out. So if I hadn't slowed down, I was literally about to crawl right outside that window. And we were 17 floors up in that high rise building. Most of the times in our careers, I feel like it's pretty safe, right? We do all this training and we're prepared for anything that comes to us. And then you have that one call or whatever, one instance, and your asshole puckers. (laughs) And literally when I reached my hand out that window, my asshole puckered because I realized what I almost just did. Right. (laughs) So... The second half of that room, that was a really quick search. (laughs) Like I said, my asshole pocketed. I scared the shit out of myself. (laughs) I'm crawling along trying to finish that search as quick as possible. But even looking back to that now, and to me, this goes back to lack of training on my behalf. In a hoarder residence, like I'm not going to find anyone laying on those piles of whatever they're collecting, right? Mm -hmm. Of what they consider precious items. So I almost feel kind of embarrassed that I was searching. So same thing. That's when I went and did research about hoarder fires and how they live, which is a lot of times they just have little goat trails and they just walk through their stuff through these little goat trails. I think any of us would have done exactly what you did. Well, like I said, now that I know a bit more, I can also say at that time, we just got thermal imager cameras on all of our trucks. Um, There was one time where only our district chiefs had thermal imagers, but because it was brand new on the trucks, do you think my captain and I remember to bring it. Nope. Still sit down on the truck. So just little stuff like that, that probably would have really changed that situation. And again, not saying that I shouldn't have searched that room, but maybe my search tactic could have been a little bit different. Yeah. It's good to reflect back on calls and just take pointers from them. For sure. I'm sure this is the same for everyone, but there is not a single fire that I go to. I don't learn something or I don't think, man, I shouldn't have done that. I should have done this. Just that continuing education, always learning, always getting better. And you had one that was a rescue that the quote unquote victim wasn't too good to you? Yeah. So there's another high rise fire. The fire was actually on the first floor this time. The, the first in truck was fire attack. So my crew, we got assigned search and rescue. The very first room I came into was a bathroom. We were splitting up. I took this room. My senior guy was going to take a different room. And then my captain was going to a different room. And then we'd meet back together. And the smoke, it wasn't full zero visibility, but maybe I could see 30 centimeters. But I remember walking into the bathroom. I had my flashlight on and I turned to my left and I see two eyeballs glowing, (laughs) looking at me. And I kind of jumped a bit because, you know, like human eyeballs don't do that. Right. So (laughs) I get a bit closer and I realize it's a dog and the dog is so scared that it's hiding in a bathtub. 
I'm a dog person. I love dogs. I go back. I tell my captain, I got a dog in here. And he's like, okay, just stay with the dog. We're going to finish the primary search and then we'll leave the building together. So they finish up their searches. They come back. It's only like a 40 pound dog. So I pick it up and I'm carrying it out. And as I'm carrying it out, walking past other crews. And like I said, people know me, they know I love dogs. And I'm like, look, I found a dog and I'm hugging it, squeezing it, loving it, all that stuff. Somebody had a leash, which was perfect because the dog didn't have one. We put the leash on the dog's collar and we walk the dog over to the ambulance to reunite it with the occupant. So after the fire, we're cleaning up. And I remember getting back into the truck and I went to unclick the waist belt of my SCBA and there was something mushy on it. <laughs> and I thought, uh-oh. So I bring my hand back up to my face to smell it. And sure enough, that dog shit on me. <laughs> <laughs> that was my nickname for a little while was shitty. <laughs> As you can imagine, the whole truck stunk after that. Yeah. And you had one that changed your search technique. Yeah. So this is at a recent fire. Sometimes I'm almost embarrassed telling these stories, but I also like people learning from my mistakes even. Yeah, we have to. (laughs) Yeah. This was down in uh, Queen Street, downtown Toronto, and typical buildings on Queen Street. It was a mixed occupancy. The ground floor is commercial. And then the top two floors are normally apartments. So we had a guy hanging out of the window on the third floor apartment. So we throw a ladder up. We assist the guy down the ladder. I remember one of the captains saying, is there anyone else in there? And he says, my roommate. So me and another guy, we climb back up the ladder and we basically do VEIS through that third floor window. We do a search of the room. It's clear. And then we move on. So I think my buddy, he goes to the hallway straight across from the room and I do right hand turn. And I'm doing a typical search technique that we all learn in the academy, which is just crawling around on my hands and knees. So I'm crawling down this hallway. It's a narrow hallway. I learned a search technique from a Los Angeles firefighter where uh, you're on your hands and knees, but you're kind of moving sideways. So your feet are actually in contact with the wall as opposed to your hand and your leg, like my right hand and my right leg. Down this hallway, I couldn't do the search technique, which was to have my two feet on the wall. And it kind of makes me stretch out further. And my feet keep me orientated to the wall. Turn back to that traditional search where I'm just crawling hands and knees head first. And I think I was feeling along the wall. And all of a sudden I go to put my hands back down on the floor, but there's no floor there. What I'd found was a staircase. And I ended up rolling head first down the stairs. Because as you can imagine, when I put my hands down and there's no floor there, the weight of my SCBA just throws me ass over tea kettle. Luckily, the stairs, they had a turn in them. You walk down three stairs and then you turn left. So I didn't fall fully down a set of stairs. It was just three stairs I rolled down. But I remember my foot was caught in a banister. (laughs) Me and my buddy had made entry through the third floor window. There's firefighters on the second floor. I can hear them. That's where the fire is. And I'm thinking, I can't let anyone see me with my foot stuck in this banister because I just rolled down the stairs. So I'm trying to pull my foot out really quick so nobody can see me. Toronto Fire, we're like cockroaches. Like there's firefighters everywhere. I go back up the stairs to find my buddy and I just say to him, the stairs are over here. <laughs> That's all I said to him. Yeah. So even that, where I roll ass over tea kettle down a set of stairs, I've seen that search technique that you mentioned, which is like a glorified clamp slide technique for moving hose lines, where essentially you have a foot out, out in front of you. You can sound the floor to make sure it's there. And most of your body weight's on your back leg. So if you found a hole in the floor, you don't go head first into it. Just that lead leg will fall into it. But all my body weight's still sitting on my back leg. Yeah. I had tried it. I played around with it. I didn't really like it. And maybe it's just because it was different. But I'm telling you now that I rolled headfirst down a set of stairs, that is definitely a technique I'm going to get more comfortable with. 
What I love so much about Aaron Fields offering that to everybody, even regarding search, is it's almost just that position you always get into. Like that's the position for clamping the hose. That's the position for searching. It becomes just a habit of that's your position when you're in low vis. Yeah. Simplifies things. Definitely. That's another guy when you look at a fire service mentor. The first time I took his class, this is the same even as an athlete. I was never the worst, but I was never the best. I was just kind of in the middle. And when I took his class, I remember feeling about myself that I was a decent firefighter. And then I took his class and I'm like, wow, I'm a shitty firefighter. Compared to this guy, I'm shitty. (laughs) This guy is way better, way more mastering his skills compared to what I've done. I had the same experience. Oh, good. I'm glad I'm not the only one. A lot of us will echo that sentiment. Yeah. So again, as a mentor, wanting to be a better firefighter, to be more like him, to be as professional as he is. Yeah. Big time. So that even just speaks to you meet someone like that or watch what they're putting out online and it may be geared toward engine work, but it's so much bigger than that because it's the mentality and the approach and then it affects how you deal with everything beyond engine work. For sure. And I mean, I'm not sure what your department's like. Sometimes in Toronto Fire, we can be a jack of all trades and a master of none, whereas some departments down in the States, they truly are masters of their trade. So like you mentioned, whether it's engine work or the truck guys, they have very specific jobs that they are supposed to do. Recently, this is an FDNY firefighter. They said, if you're an engine guy and you make a rescue, you get no credit for it because that's not your job. Your job is to stretch line and put the fire out. That's how they operate down there. There's a lot of credit to that. There's something to it. The longer I'm on, the more I think that we get watered down and it's too much to cover. And if we just focused on your one role, you could, like you said, become a master of it. Yeah. At first, I didn't totally understand it. I kind of liked that I knew how to do everything. I could operate an aerial if I needed to. I could do auto acts if I needed to. I could stretch hose lines if I needed to. But like you just mentioned, maybe some of my skills are a bit watered down as opposed to being really good at something. The jack of all trades makes it more exciting or interesting for us as individuals, but maybe we're not delivering the best skill we can when we have to deliver so many. Yeah, totally. You've had some other funny nicknames. Yes. (laughs) One of the very first ones I had, this is early in my career. The guys started to notice when we were running medical calls, we'd have a lot of male patients and they were always naked. (laughs) Always naked. So one of my senior guys, he made this observation and he goes, I'm going to start calling you the wiener queen. <laughs> and I was like, okay, fair enough. And, and it, it would continue. Like I said, we'd run medical calls, male patients, and their dicks would always be out. Never fail. <laughs> so then there's another guy on my crew and I'll just say, maybe he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but he hears this nickname and he's like the wiener queen. He's like, I like that. He's like, I'm going to call you TWK. And in my head, I'm thinking K. I'm like, I'm pretty sure Queen is spelled with a Q. But I'm I'm still pretty junior at the time. I'm not going to say much, but I kind of bring it up. And then the other guys around the table, they hear. So then it it turns into the joke on this guy, right? Because he thinks Queen is spelled with a K. (laughs) So anyways, that changed my nickname again. Instead of the Wiener Queen, I was TWK for a while. Then to build, this is still rolling off the same nickname here. I'd spent about nine years at this hall with these guys. When you talk about fire service family and those guys are my brothers, the brothers that I never wanted kind of thing, (laughs) but they're my brothers. 
Finally, I make the decision that it's time for me to move on and I'm going to switch command. Like Toronto's a big city, so I actually ended up going to downtown Toronto. So they're doing their farewell stuff. And some of the traditions that we have for farewells is even on your birthday, like you're taking a, a whipped cream pie to your face. I get some of that. One of the guys, he's a baker. He bakes cakes for any special occasions, people's birthdays and whatnot. So anyways, he baked a cake for me leaving. He likes writing messages on the cakes. And on the cake, it says something like, TDK, you will be missed. And he shows it to me. He's like, what do you think? And I'm like, wow, that's great. Like, thanks. I really appreciate you taking this time to make this cake. So anyways, after dinner, we're kind of sitting in the TV room. And one of the other guys asked me, he's like, Jess, what the hell does TDK stand for? And I was like, I don't know, Marty. Like, I didn't have the heart to ask Jeff what it stood for. I just smiled and thanked him for making me a cake. Jeff walks in the room and Marty, who's a mouthier person than I am, he's like, Jeff, he's like, what the fuck does TDK stand for? And Jeff goes, the Dick King. (laughs) And Marty's like, that's not a fucking nickname. (laughs) Now we had another spinoff. That was all from one nickname. Another story about some nicknames that we'd picked up. Actually, I think this is the same fire. I told you a story about the forcible entry. Uh, This is that same fire. The guy I was working with, he's like my best friend at the hall. So we come out of that fire and we have the biggest shit eating grins on our faces because we just had a fire. And we walk out of the building and one of our senior guys is down there. He's an acting captain. And he looks at us and he goes, well, 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 if it isn't the Wonder Twins, Scrotum Boy and Wonder Girl. In my head, I'm thinking, Wonder Girl? That's not a bad handle to have. And then as soon as that thought enters my brain, he leans over to my buddy and he goes, by the way, you're Wonder Girl. Oh, jeez. I'm like, what the fuck? That makes me scrotum boy? <laughs> so the nickname, the Wonder Twins, went on for a while, but... <laughs> Where does that even come from? <laughs> it must be some TV show before my time. I would assume the TV show didn't have scrotum boy in it, but the guy who said that whole sentence, he's notorious for... He can say one sentence and insult eight people in the room in totally different ways. Amazing. So, yeah, he's kind of going for that. Yeah. You got to appreciate that art. Oh, totally. I kind of laughed. Like, I'm a lesbian. I wasn't open about it necessarily when I was first on the job, but I am now. It just makes me laugh even when I think about it now, when the majority of my nicknames are all based on male genitalia. Right. <laughs> so let's segue off of that into your feelings of women in the fire service. You know, I kind of had some bad experiences. Like I said, my first day on the job, my captain basically told me he had no faith in me because I was a female. Even when I told you I put that transfer sheet in to go to my dream hall, my senior guy, he came and told me one day, they don't even want you there. And I was kind of taken back. I knew these guys. I was a student with those guys. I thought they liked me. He might have had some selfish motivation for telling me this, but I also think he was trying to protect me. And I was kind of like, well, why? Why wouldn't they want me there? And he's like, because you're a girl. And I'm not sure what stereotypes some female firefighters have, but the guys thought maybe everything would change because a female was going to be there working with them. If a guy says fuck in front of me, he's like, oh, sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to swear in front of you. You think I've never heard the word fuck before? Just stuff like that, right? Like they kind of change how they act. Going to my second hall, and you're already kind of nervous about moving. And I find out that they're afraid to have me there because I'm a female. Again, you get a little crushed. I worked with a guy for about nine years. I know he had older sisters that maybe picked on him. I know he was going through a tough divorce. I don't know if he had a bit of a chip on his shoulder about females. I remember he would say stuff 
Like they had an all-female build at Habitat for Humanity. So they were featuring it on the news that day and we're all sitting around the table. And he goes, who would want to live in that house? And I was like, dude, I'm sitting right here. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's another time, and this is just me and him. And he must have had an experience the night before. And it was something with his kid and the soccer team that his kid was playing on. And there was a female coach. Whatever situation happened, he kind of finishes his story with saying, women should never be in roles where they have to have responsibilities like coaching. And I mean, he knows me. I'm a coach. Like I coach the cross. I'm an instructor. Like he knows all this about me. And I said, you know, everything you're describing is me. It was just me and him talking. There was nobody else in the room. It's not like he was showing off. And he said, yeah, but you're like one of the guys. As nice as that is to hear, at the same time, I am still a female. I represent other females out there. We're not all this one stereotype that you think we are. We're different. I wanted to ask you, and I don't want to put you in a position to have to speak for others, but I'm assuming that you're closer to having an answer for this, way closer than I am. I've said often when I'm speaking about mental health that we're not going to be able to eliminate stigma or any isms like racism, sexism, any kind of bigoted, backwards, ignorant mentality. You're not going to eliminate it, but we can shift the culture within the fire service or even within our country, hopefully globally, if we want to expand it that far, to sort of own the house, right? We're the majority that see the reality the way it is. And then those that are ignorant to it, they're the minority in their thought process. And it quiets that down, or at least they don't feel so emboldened that they can just outright put people down openly like they do. Yeah. I feel like there's been a massive shift culturally with the views on sexual orientation and gender. We're probably in the best position that we've ever been in. Mm -hmm. But I just wonder what it's going to take for gay men in the fire service to be comfortable enough to be open about it. What's it going to take? Yeah. And I mean, I don't have an answer for you. I don't know. (laughs) You think it's just something as simple as to normalize it. Like you had mentioned with genders in the fire service, it is becoming more normal to see female firefighters on the trucks. So I just assume if there was more gay men that came out, then maybe it would be more normal and other people would see it's okay. And that yes, gay men can be firefighters too. I'm not sure, to be honest with you. It just puzzles me that we see the shift in the general culture, but not in our microculture. Most of the female comments throughout my career were majority from the older generation of firefighters. The younger generation, it's more normal for them. It's not as new or different, I guess. Right. So we're sort of dealing with a war of attrition where eventually the mentality will just naturally shift. I assume, yeah, that's what will happen. Do you have any access to or are you aware of? Do you speak to people that are still holding back who they truly are and wish they could be open and be themselves? What kind of conversations do you have? What is your sense from them and what's holding them back? Honestly, I can't say I've had any conversations like that. If people had approached me, so, yeah, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. No, I just figured you might have more of an answer than I would, and I've just been puzzled by it. Yeah. I just wish it was different. Yeah, no, and me too, trust me. One thing I will say, and I realize Toronto Fire is a little bit different. They've had women on the job for over 30 years now. I have a female captain, and she's been on the job for 30 years. And if you think some of the departments within the GTA 
their first women on the job would have been under 10 years. So Toronto Fire is a pretty progressive department by having women on that long. And we're not perfect by any means. We still have a lot of work to do to improve and to be better. But I feel lucky some of those women really paved the way for my generation. Some paved the way in a good way and maybe some paved the way in a bad way. My first few experiences, other firefighters would see me and see that I was a female and just assume I was useless. So if there's female firefighters before me and that was the road they paved, then that was kind of shitty to any other female firefighter coming on the job at that time. It's just crazy to me because those same firefighters 100% have had the experience of realizing that not all men are good firefighters. And maybe they assumed prior to that experience that they were going to be. So you think they would have had that eye opening and then been able to make the perspective flip and transfer it to seeing women in the fire service or people of different sexual orientation. People stop their thought process at a certain point and they just don't think it all the way through. Yeah, totally. So despite all that, do you feel that there's a family of the fire service or a brotherhood or a sisterhood, however you want to phrase it? A hundred percent. It's a family environment. Early in my career, I wasn't open about being a lesbian. Anything about my private life, I just didn't talk about it. There's two guys at my hall that were the jokers. And every once in a while, lesbian jokes would come up. I knew they were looking at me, giggling, and whatever. It is what it is. And eventually, you know, time passes and I'm starting to feel more comfortable. And I come out. I come out to my best friend at the hall first. And then slowly I start telling the guys. And I ended up telling one of the jokers first because I was maybe a little bit closer with him. So I opened up and I said, I'm a lesbian. I have a girlfriend, blah, blah, blah. Fast forward a bit and we're at the kitchen table again. And the other joker's in there and he starts making the lesbian jokes. And normally the other joker would join in and it would kind of be like a tag team, right? But this time, the guy that I came out to, he redirects the joke and he redirects it at some other poor, innocent guy sitting at the table. And then that guy becomes the focus of the joke. Now that he knew who I was, he was protecting me. One of the guys at my hall, he had a duty exchange come in and the duty exchange just happened to be a brown guy. I wasn't actually at the hall this day. The next shift, the senior guys told the guy who did the duty exchange, they're like, don't ever do a duty exchange with that guy again. He was too serious. He didn't get our jokes. And it kind of came out that, yes, some of them might have been racially aimed. And I mean, good for this kid who would have been standing up for himself. Because when the lesbian jokes came my way, I just took it. I didn't stand up for myself. But anyways, going back to the racially motivated jokes, I remember one of the senior guys saying, we make those jokes because when we go into a fire, I have to know that you got my back no matter what. And I'm not saying that that is the right way to approach it. But that was just his interpretation of joking around and whatnot. It seems like broken logic and a weak excuse. Yes. I don't think that's the right way, but this is how he described it. Yeah. So then when I related it back to my experience with the lesbian jokes and when those guys knew me, that's all they wanted to know. They just wanted to know who I really was because now it's like I'm part of their family. I opened up to them. And from that point on, they protected me and they never made those lesbian jokes again. So That's not necessarily the right way to go about it, but I kind of understand what they were doing. Yeah, and hopefully that translates across how they would interact with anybody from now on, we could hope. Hopefully. But then I can go on and say one of the guys who's the jokester, it's kind of like a father figure. And I remember one of my other buddies saying that he's like a father to me. Like some of the stuff that he showed us, it's like your dad teaching you stuff. When my car battery went, that guy searched all day 
trying to find me the cheapest battery replacement. Then he came home with me after shift and he helped me replace my car battery. And, you know, he explained to me, he's like, this is no different than when we cut car batteries at auto accidents. Disconnect the negative first, then the positive, take the battery out. Even something simple like that. My wife and I were moving and my father-in-law was blown away because my whole crew showed up and helped me move. And they didn't have to lift a finger because my crew did everything. He's like, holy crap, if you ever need to move, just call a bunch of firefighters. So it's stuff like that. Yeah, when you say family, that is 100%. Whether those guys are like father figures to me or they're the brothers that I never wanted, now I have. That's totally true. Have you ever struggled physically or mentally through your career? And have you seen other people struggle as well? I feel like I do okay. But sometimes people ask, what's the worst call you've ever seen? Or what's the worst thing you've ever had to go through? And I can honestly say, and I can speak for some of my crew members too, the hardest thing I've ever done as a firefighter was my crew member committing suicide. Mm. That was the hardest thing I ever went through as a firefighter. Mm -hmm. That changed us. And this isn't my story to tell. This is a crew member of mine that obviously struggled with mental health. This was around the seven-year mark of my career. I had two crew members attempt suicide. That is a scary statistic. We were a big haul. If we were a full house, all of our trucks had full manpower, we'd be 13 of us sitting down for dinner. Two of them attempted suicide. One was unsuccessful, luckily, and the other one was successful, unfortunately. That's something they don't teach you when you're in college, something that we might have to deal with. So Ryan was my crew member who unfortunately was successful in his attempt. He committed suicide on a Friday and we showed up for work on the Saturday. I was at a hockey tournament and I got the phone call from my best friend and he said, Ryan killed himself. I always remember that tournament. That's when I got the call. And that Saturday when we showed up to work, I knew that there was guys who were like, we shouldn't be here. We shouldn't be at work today because Ryan just killed himself yesterday. And even my best friend, he told me, Jess, I couldn't even pull in the parking lot this morning. He's like, I had to do a couple laps around the block to just pull myself together before I pulled in here. For me personally, there's nowhere else I wanted to be except for at the fire hall with those guys. To me, those guys knew Ryan the way I did. My wife, she didn't know him the way we did. So I wanted to be with those guys that day. But like I said, I knew there was other guys there and their feelings like we shouldn't be here right now. They called EAP in. So basically, we were out of service for, I don't remember if it was the morning or for most of the day, but uh, EAP came in and sat down and tried to talk to us. And uh, I don't want to offend you at all because I think you have a background. No, you're not going to offend me. Okay. I just remember the EAP guy coming in. He's kind of like, you know, if you guys want to talk, we can talk. And everyone was just silent. We just sat around the table looking at this guy. And I remember thinking, I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> I don't know you. I want to talk to my crew. That was how I wanted to get through it, was to be with my crew and to remember Ryan. Do you think the guys that were vocalizing that no one should be there that day, do you think they wanted to be there just like you because of the family and the closeness of your crew and be together, but they were concerned about running calls and being on point or witnessing something when they're raw that might damage them and traumatize them even more? Yeah, 100%. And it's funny the little things you remember from certain circumstances. I remember my captain who was very direct and he asked the EAP guy, he said, how did Ryan kill himself? And he wanted to know the specifics. How did he kill himself? And the EAP guy wouldn't tell us. And I mean, we've been hearing rumors. I'm sure that some of those guys were concerned that if we ran a hanging that day, we wouldn't react the way that we should because that would have hit really close to home. Right. So I'm sure that had some of it to do with it. Yeah. 
You mentioned you were at a hockey tournament when you found this out. So let's step off of that and tell me about the Toronto Fire Women's Hockey Team in general. The Toronto Fire Women's Hockey Team, that is probably something that I am most proud of. Because for me, that was taking my two passions, hockey, which was from when I was younger, and now my passion is firefighting. That was putting my two passions together. I don't know 100%, but I'm 95% sure that we are the first department to have an all-female firefighting team. And I understand in Toronto, we're a much bigger department, so we would have more bodies to pull from. One, they have to be female, and then two, they'd have to be hockey players. There was a long time I played with the Toronto Police women's team. I played for years with them because there wasn't enough women on Toronto Fire to play. Um, So we've got house leagues that we play in, and uh, I always played in the Scarborough House League. And one year, we just hired a bunch of new women, and a bunch of them played. Because there was one time where I might have been one of the only females in the Scarborough House League. And then all of a sudden we had like six. The wheels are starting to turn in my head. I'm like, this is just an East command. We have three other commands in this city. And I know of six in East. How many other females do I not know about on this job? So I start to put the word out. And sure enough, all of a sudden we got enough to make a women's hockey team. As the years go on, every time we hire, we're getting more and more. And like these girls played high levels of hockey. Like they're good. Like they're really good. We're getting better and better, which comes with some pros and cons. Majority of the tournaments we play in are emergency services tournaments. So a lot of times we're playing other police teams from other places. But same thing, they might not have as big of a pool to pull from. So sometimes in those tournaments, because we're a very strong team now, I don't want to say it's not fun to play in those tournaments, but sometimes it's tough. We were the first ever all-female team to enter the Southern Ontario Firefighters Hockey League tournament. Pretty emotional time for me because I played in that tournament for years. I just played with the Scarborough House League. There was lots of times where I was the only female in the tournament. And then as the years went on, you know, there'd be a couple others, like one from Brampton or one from, uh, I remember the airport fire department had a female on their team. So for us to eventually have a full team of female firefighters, it was pretty exciting. Now, the other side of it, it can be tough sometimes. I felt like I was putting my teammates in danger because there's still sometimes at those tournaments where the guys don't like it when there might be a female that's better than them. And this is, I'm just talking about hockey. <laughs> I had numerous times. There was one game I had a guy run my best player and it was an open ice hit and just fucking smoked her. And if that was two guys' teams, there would have been a fight. That's how obnoxious this hit was. And I couldn't do anything to defend my teammates. I'm not big enough to fight. We're not going to fight a grown man. We're not dumb. It's not going to go well for us. All we could really do, and my player did this, she just got back up, skated over to the face-off dot, and waited for the puck to drop. Amazing. So I take some stuff personally, I think, because to me, I feel like that's my team. And I put that girl in that position. I had another senior firefighter say to me, because I was telling her my concerns, and she says, Jess, these are all female firefighters. She's like, you don't think they've been in that position before where somebody tries to knock them down? (laughs) What a great point. You're totally right. These girls can handle it. There's other instances in that tournament. Sometimes the refs will protect us maybe a little bit too much, (laughs) and they'll call a lot of penalties against the other teams. And if you can imagine, that's really frustrating for the other teams. And doesn't do you guys any favors either. 
No, even in the house league where I've caught an edge and I fell <laughs> and the ref will call the closest guy near me a tripping penalty, even though he didn't touch me. So I've literally skated over to a guy in the penalty box before and said, hey, I'm sorry, you just got that penalty because I'm a chick. <laughs> Same thing in that tournament. And don't get me wrong, there's times where, yes, the refs needed to protect us because, like I said, I had a guy run my best player. But then there's sometimes it's kind of like stop calling so many penalties because the other team's getting pissed off at us. You know what I mean? <laughs> so. And they're going to make assumptions that you approve of that and it just doesn't do you guys favors. Yeah, the usual that we're females, we're too soft, we can't take it, we can't play with the guys, blah, blah, blah. So. Mm. So every year I ask my team, I say, do you want to enter the Southerns tournament? And they always say yes. We've played in that tournament three years now. And obviously this year it's canceled due to COVID. But last year, I believe, and maybe it's because they're getting used to it now. But last year was the cleanest tournament that we've ever had. We had no issues on the ice. Nobody was trying to run us. So when we were talking about making change, it was more normal for the guys to see us in the tournament the third year. I love that. Without me even asking a specific question, when you wrote out your bio, you put, my favorite weapons are hockey sticks and halogen bars. <laughs> well, like I said, those are my two passions. I have a hockey stick tattooed on the back of my right arm. And one day I will get a halogen bar tattooed on the back of my left arm. But Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I was lucky enough to get connected with you through reaching out to the Fire Service Women of Ontario. Talk to me about how you got connected with them and give me your take. I don't totally remember exactly how I got involved with them. What I do remember is Toronto Fire would put out a letter saying, we will pay for the first 10 firefighters to register for this conference. I love going to conferences. I love learning new things, meeting those mentors and whatnot. So anyways, I signed up and I went. So honestly, FSWO, for me, it just started off as a firefighting conference where I got to learn cool things. So even at the first FSWO conference I went to, one of the courses was forcible entry. This was my first hands-on training of mechanical advantages of your halogen bars and whatnot, how to use it. Nobody else had ever taught me that before. So even to have that opportunity, I think about some of the other instructors that they brought in. There's a firefighter from Burlington, and I don't remember his name, but he had a course talking about how hydrogen cyanide from smoke is really bad for us. There's a B12 vitamin that you can take. You could take it in the morning before you go to shift. So they do it in Burlington. It's a spray. So after a fire, they'll spray this vitamin B12 in their mouth and it helps remove that cyanide from your blood. And I thought, how come I don't know about this? Why am I just learning about this now? Somebody else that they had was Dave Dodson. So Dave Dodson is known art of reading smoke. And I know you've had his uh... successor. Yeah. On is one of your guests. But same thing when I took Dave Dodson's course at FSWO. Again, one of those things where I'm like, I'm not as good as firefighters as I think I am. Like, I still have a ton of shit to learn. They had some heavy hitter instructors. Aaron Fields being another one. That's where I met Aaron. Was at FSWO for the first time. So yeah, they just brought in some great instructors. And again, you talk about mentors. Those guys were mentors to me. And now here we are a bit later in my career. And I've taken on the role as an instructor at FSWO. And I like it. Normally, FSWO is a two-day conference or symposium, they call it now. So I'll teach one day. And then the other day, I'll be a student. That's awesome. FSWO is where you got my name from. When I think about FSWO and all of the amazing women that are a part of it, I can't even believe they put my name forward, if that makes sense. That's how many amazing members that they have to choose from. So, Well, I believe that there's a lot of amazing members to choose from, but just talking to you for this time, I know why they offered you up. <laughs> 
well, he said, very, very flattering of them to consider me. So, would you want to finish off with a few standard questions? Sure. Shared dorms or your own rooms? What do you prefer? I feel like I'm indifferent. Either or doesn't bother me. I like <laughs> this is a bad joke, but like I'm a professional firefighter, I can sleep anywhere. So. Yeah. I don't. That's probably a horrible answer. <laughs> well, no, I think you can take that to off shift when you're so gassed. It doesn't matter where you sit or fall down, you're going to fall asleep. Yeah. Or on a standby in the truck. <laughs> yeah. I've had both. I used to have my own dorm. They had a separate female dorm. At my new hall, their dorms are split up by trucks. So if I'm on the aerial truck, that's the dorm you sleep in. I don't know if one's better than the other. It's just the place I go lay around until the next call comes in. So. <laughs> do you prefer to eat together or everyone do their own thing? eat together for sure. And I know you've had other guests on and I think they hit the nail on the head, but that kitchen table at the fire hall, that's where all of life's problems get solved. <laughs> Maybe not the best solutions, but. Um, <laughs> I've never heard it extended and put that way. So that's brilliant. I'm going to steal that and I'll give you credit for it. Yeah. That's a lot of where your family time is. Is that that kitchen table? Do you prefer to do crew workouts or workouts with colleagues or do you like to work out on your own? This will probably sound bad. I'm a bit of a lone wolf. And I don't know if that goes back to the fire fit. I'll even make jokes now with guys that I work out with. They're so much stronger than me. It makes me feel shitty about myself. I'll be doing like one rep max deadlifts. That's a heavy weight for me. And they'll be like, Jess, you can just leave the weight on the bar for me. I'm like, are you doing deadlifts? (laughs) This is a joke. But they'll be doing like bicep curls with my fucking deadlift weight. But I used to get mad at the guys. I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> so much more weight than me. Where my one rep max is a warm up for you, you asshole. But don't get me wrong. I don't mind having people in the gym with me. At my old hall, one of my best buddies, we would do circuits together. So I could assume because you love force entry, but truck engine or rescue? I'd have to say I'm probably a truckie at heart. I've mentioned I was never really great at math. So pump operations is always my strong point. I love, and this is more so at my new hall, we are more masters of specific skills. So again, I am signed to an aerial truck and we do search and rescue. That's our role. Our pump truck is going to stretch lines. We're going to go do search and rescues. I really do enjoy that part of it. Being ventilation sector at a high rise fire, that's not that fun, but that'd be your job. On the other hand, at a house fire, if I get sent to go cut a hole in the roof, then now that's back to fun again, right? So don't get me wrong. I love stretching lines. Some of the best fires I've been at, it's when I'm on the end of the nozzle. (laughs) Those are my favorites. So I don't know. Maybe I'm a liar. Maybe I'm not a real truckie, but... (laughs) You just like to do fun shit. Yeah. And then you go to AutoX. I love doing AutoX. I wish I could do more. Jumping off being on the nozzle, do you have a preference, smooth bore or fog? I'd be a smooth bore cartel for sure. I'll try not to get into many details. I know that's a sensitive topic. (laughs) No, you can speak to it all you want. This was the eye-opener for me. And this wasn't even in a real fire. I was doing flashover training. I have my own theories on a whole bunch of stuff. But anyways, I remember the instructor saying, it's guaranteed that somebody is going to open a wide-angle fog within the flashover container. and We're all going to feel the steam burns. And sure enough, in that training, somebody forgot to check their nozzle pattern because we were using a combination nozzle. And yeah, it got real hot in there really quick. Even now, Toronto Fire, we started doing flashover training. And I think they should show that They should teach everyone that, how a fog nozzle can steam burn us. Like they should teach that. Even though, yeah, it's a shitty thing to go through, but they should show it. Because to me, that was the eye opener for me. Somebody just accidentally opened the fog stream. 
one thing that I try and show everybody when I'm doing the host handling stuff in stream application is that the fog nozzle, put it down and move it, it could just roll to another pattern. 100%. Just from friction on the floor. So you have to have the habit of picking it up and turning it to the right every time before you open up. Yeah, 100%. Even when I'm teaching with my students, like you said, we're just crawling through the burn house and sure enough, <laughs> the pattern's changed. They set it on the outside of the building, but it's changed by the time they get the fire. So. So being an instructor, are you fond of acronyms? Do you use them? What's your take on that? Sometimes. It's like yes for some and no for others. <laughs> this will probably lead totally off point here. But I even look at OFM sign-offs that my students have to do. When you call a mayday for students, they have to remember Lunars. And here I am as an instructor. You think I can remember what? I don't even know how many letters that is, like six or something. Do you think I can remember all six? Like, that's a lot to remember, especially in a stressful situation. If you're calling a mate, there's no way I'm going to remember all those. Yeah. Whereas in Toronto Fire, we keep it really simple. We do blip now where you push your emergency button. Then it's just simple. Your location, identification, and your problem. So maybe my answer to that is keep them short. (laughs) We're just firefighters. I can't remember too many things. I think Aaron Field speaks to that sometimes. He talks about the rule of threes. That's about as much as our brain can remember. For that example, that's 100% true for me. I like the idea of blip. Like you're having a problem. It's just, oh, it's just a little blip. (laughs) I'm trapped. It's just a blip. (laughs) Yeah. I watch videos of firefighters who have been in mayday situations. And I'm even impressed that they remembered to call a mayday. (laughs) Because when they describe what they're going through, I'm thinking, I would just be trying, whether it's self-rescue or the crew I'm with, I would totally forget to call a mayday. So even that by itself just impresses me (laughs) that they remember. That's a shitty situation. You might die. That's why you're calling a mayday, right? Well, I mentioned it before, but I'll mention it again. This was a real pleasure talking to you, honestly. I'm glad we got connected and I wish we could work together. I feel like we'd be good friends. For sure. Well, I love talking about firefighting. Well, hopefully when things open back up, we can actually connect at one of the conferences and say hi. For sure. I think you had been posting about the Smoke Showing conference that again got canceled. Last year, I was scheduled to go to three conferences. I was going to go to FDIC early April. I was going to go to the Smoke Showing, which I think was at the beginning of summer. And then FSWO is always in the fall. And COVID just wiped all of that training out for me. So I think that's probably the one thing I'm missing big time right now is going to conferences. That's a good trifecta you had planned right there. Oh, t- totally. Even the smoke showing. So that would have been their first year. Mm-hmm. But they had some great instructors going to show up there. So that's awesome. Because, you know, there's sometimes in the fire service, and I don't know if you've ever felt it, where you, you kind of feel like, man, is there nobody else like me? Like, is there nobody else this nerdy <laughs> about the job as I am? And then when you meet those people, you're like, yes, like I found my people. You know what I mean? So. And you find people that you can aspire to be even a bigger nerd. <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not big enough of a nerd. (laughs) That goes back to the Aaron Fields thing where I thought I was a good firefighter. No, I'm not. (laughs) I got lots to learn still. So this was awesome. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. Maybe down the way we do a part two. Sounds good. Cool. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah. Thanks. You too, Scott. Thanks so much.